Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. In a year dominated by week after week of bad news. Science had a pretty amazing day on Monday. Uh, Steve Scott is here, and I tell you, we just got a little jolt of energy in our newsroom a few minutes ago. Yeah, boy, and I know Joe is going to have more on this. Uh, Stock futures going through the roof with news about this Pfizer trial. Some very good news. This is CBS News on the Hour. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. We have breaking news. Pfizer said is it extremely encouraged by its coronavirus vaccine. The company says its experimental vaccine is more than 90% effective in preventing COVID-19. Pfizer and German partner BioNTech are the first drug makers to show successful data from a large-scale clinical trial of a coronavirus vaccine. This week on 880 In-Depth, a distant light in a dark tunnel. What does this news about the vaccine from Pfizer mean? You know, it's hope in a bottle. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880, and Monday was quite a day. Good evening, and thank you for joining us. We're going to begin tonight with a possible breakthrough in the development of a coronavirus vaccine. First, the news from Pfizer about the amazing success of their vaccine. And then later in the day, news from the Food and Drug Administration granting emergency authorization of an antibody treatment for COVID by Eli Lilly. We wanted to hear more about both. So our Peter Haskell got on the phone with CBS News contributor Dr. David Akis. Dr. Akis, considered one of the world's leading physicians and medical innovators, is CEO of the California-based Ellison Institute for Transformative Medicine. Peter Haskell began the conversation asking for his reaction to the news from Pfizer. You know, it's hope in a bottle. I mean, literally, is that the FDA set a threshold that you had to block 50% of people from being infected with the virus. Well, this was greater than 90%. And we haven't seen any side effects. If you look at vaccines over the last many decades, almost every side effect is seen in the first four to eight weeks. In four to eight weeks of this vaccine, we have seen no serious adverse events. So safety profile good, efficacy good, and it validated the spike protein as a target, which means that the AstraZeneca vaccine that will be announced probably next week will probably work. So will the Moderna vaccine. So will the Johnson & Johnson. So it gives us a lot of hope for the future that we'll be able to manage this virus on a global basis. 
We get the early results. What happens now before this is finally approved and they can start pushing it out the door? So they are finalizing actually by hand, going through the paper charts of every patient, making sure that what was reported was 100% accurate and it'll be submitted to the FDA. I would imagine within the next week, it will take about a week to review. And then there are about 50 million doses that have been completed and they will, uh, upon receival of an emergency youth authorization, in several weeks be distributed across the country. First, obviously, to people who are putting their health on the line by taking care of others, such as healthcare workers and other frontline professionals, and then higher risk individuals. And every state will make criteria for how to distribute the vaccines that they're given. In some ways, it almost seems like finding the vaccine might be easier than distributing it to 300 million people. Tell us about production and distribution and the challenges involved in those things. You know, this first vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, they licensed from a German biotechnology company called BioNTech, is an RNA vaccine. It's the instructions to make the spike protein. When injected, human cells take it up and actually start making the spike protein. The body makes an immune response against this part of the virus and blocks the virus from getting into the cell in the future if you're exposed to the virus. The problem with RNA is that it's very unstable. So this vaccine, for example, needs to be stored at minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit. So Pfizer, the the pharmaceutical company, made a box that can hold 980-plus vaccines, and it is charged and will last a week or so. And this big box can be delivered to a hospital and then... Uh, for 24 hours, it can last at refrigerated temperature. But that's it. And so that's a supply chain difficulty. Pfizer elected not to go with Operation Warp Speed, which is the government's distribution platform for vaccines, but to go with FedEx. Because FedEx is pretty good at deliveries um, and pretty good at systems management. And so it will be delivered to large institutions because you're going to have to you know, give administer 980-plus vaccines at once um, or they'll go bad, and you don't want that. So large institutions, but then you've got to manage people. Most times you can get in line for a vaccine, and when it's your turn, you get the shot. The problem with getting in line for COVID-19 is people are asymptomatic, and they can spread the virus. So I don't want people in line in front of my clinic. I want to call somebody in who's six, eight feet away from everybody else, all wearing masks, and bring them in at the right time. So that makes it a much more difficult logistics effort than a standard, get in line and I'll give you a shot. Give us an idea about timing, not only with Pfizer, but the other vaccines. How, how do you expect this to roll out? Uh, healthcare workers, perhaps by the end of the year, then what? So I think healthcare workers by the end of the year, probably into mid-January, then uh, other frontline workers, um, and it'll get more efficient as we go, as most things do. There are going to be hiccups in the beginning, guaranteed. And remember, each state is setting its own criteria for how to distribute it. It's not a federal mediated criteria. Then uh, other frontline workers, teachers, people who are in the front line in the retail business and others, and then people with medical conditions, elderly. We know the good is these first vaccines, at least, they work very well in elderly. That's very encouraging. Um, people with diabetes, people are overweight, and then more of the general population, potentially first focusing in some areas on younger individuals, because that's the mode of spread predominantly now. 
kids go to school and they get catch up from somebody else and bring it home to the family. And so each state will have slightly different criteria. I would imagine is that the full rollout will take six to eight months of the vaccine in the country. And then the big question is, you know, how long does it last? You know, it's like the Golden Gate Bridge. Every time they finish painting it, they have to start painting again. So we know now this will last at least six months because that's the data we have. It's only been six months since the vaccine was first administered to people. My gut is over last at least a year. And maybe it's part of your flu shot every year. There's the spike protein is put inside and it's kind of built in. Maybe it's a separate vaccine every two years. We don't know that answer yet. But I hope it's not like the Golden Gate Bridge, where when we finish vaccinating the country, we have to start again vaccinating and again and again. I hope we get a longer life or a longer uh, uh, immunity from the individual vaccine. I don't want to be a downer, but is there any reason for concern or skepticism here? The big area of concern, I think, is that RNA vaccines, which are the Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, are new. And we've never had long-term data with them. The AstraZeneca or Oxford vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, both of which, by the way, are nonprofit, which I kind of like, is that they said, both companies said, we don't want to make a dime off of other people's suffering. We're not going to charge, we're going to charge our cost only. So that's an upside for those two vaccines. They're a backbone that has been used for many years. So we have long-term experience there. What worries me on the RNA vaccine is, when you know you normally have a vaccine, your immune system comes and basically uh, uh, recognizes it, eats it up, and the vaccine is gone. With an RNA vaccine, those instructions can last a long time. And just like when somebody has peanut allergies, we can give them a low level of peanut protein every day and tolerate the body. I get worried that long-term RNA may have implications. We just don't know. There's no data to that effect, and it's totally you know just my gut, my worry. Um, but that's the one area of concern is the, the lack of long-term, especially on a large basis, uh, of the RNA vaccines. The other vaccines, we have plenty of data on. Distribution is obviously going to be a concern, and manufacturing has been difficult. You know, normally it takes several years to optimize these cell lines that make the vaccine and then put them into very large bioreactors. Here, we just did it quickly. And I'm not worried on a quality basis. I'm worried on a quantity basis. And it's been a lot harder to get large quantities of vaccines out, not just for the U.S., but for the globe. Because remember, I mean, this is the critical point that I think is missed many times, is, first of all, uh, 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 um, the, uh, uh, about 7 to 9% of people in the United States won't respond to a vaccine. They're immune suppressed. They're challenged in other ways. Um, and if you give them a vaccine, they're not going to make it potent enough for immune response to give them immunity. So that's why we need herd immunity, which is large numbers of people in the United States vaccinated so that the virus can't spread, is to protect those people, our mothers, our sisters, our grandmothers, our grandfathers who may have these conditions, cancer patients and others. And so also we have to worry about the globe. If somebody's not vaccinated in a country and comes to the United States, they could spread it to one of these individuals and cause their demise. And obviously we don't want that. And so distributing this vaccine, not just in the United States, but to 3 billion people globally, is going to be a major challenge. And then the other part that I think is critical is that, you know, not when you get this vaccine, many people will not get the virus at all. But we don't know whether they may be a short period where they're asymptomatic and infectious. 
And so we're going to have to wear masks through the full delivery of the vaccine across the country and probably a little bit afterwards as the virus dies down. And then we'll be okay and be able to go out without a mask and go to what I hope is a new normal, which is what happens in the Asian countries, is whenever you're sick, you wear a mask. And so a sign of respect for others is that you don't want to spread by coughing anything to anyone else. The fact that the states are overseeing this and not the federal government, is that good or bad? I, I don't think it's great because, you know, there are, we have some amazing public health experts in the United States. But we don't have one in every state um, who is making their criteria. And so it worries me that uh, uh, somebody in one state can get a vaccine and in another state, maybe they're lower on the priority list. And as we saw with policy, you know, over the last eight, nine months across the country, some states were good about when to open schools and when to shut them. Some weren't. Um, some mayors, some governors were very aggressive and wanted public health control, did a great job. Others didn't. I, I want everybody to be an equal level of great, not some being good and some being poor. And I think we can do that from a federal level with guidance. It's very hard to do that on a state level. In a year where politics and science seem to have been in conflict at times, we asked Dr. Akis what he thought about the timing of this news, just days after the presidential election. So what's interesting is that the FDA put out criteria. Interesting is probably the wrong word, but what's intriguing is the FDA put out criteria that in order to submit your vaccine data for consideration for emergency youth authorization, EUA, more than half the people on the trial have to have gone at least two months to look at safety data. Well, this trial, Pfizer, half the people will hit two months next week. And so, in a sense, they couldn't submit to the FDA until next week when that data is complete. So the FDA's criteria really dictated the timing here. And so could they have announced earlier it worked, but they didn't submit it? I guess they could have. But I don't see that would have had any benefit to the vaccine development or public trust in the vaccine. Um, but it really is, I think, reflective of this criteria, which are somewhat arbitrary. I get that you need to have a significant number of people, but whether it's 48% or 50%, does it really matter? And the answer probably is no. These are 40-plus thousand-person trials. So if it's 20,000 people or 18,000 people, I think the results are going to be pretty similar. Um, but this is a result of that. So, you know, it's very hard you know, to say is that I know that the unblinding happened on Sunday and they announced it you know, early Monday morning, you know, at 6.30 a.m. So there was a period of less than 12 hours between Pfizer getting the data and them announcing it publicly. Um, so, you know, it's not like they hold, held the data. They didn't know the answer until Sunday night. Then you have the transition, which is not a transition. Are there implications for distribution or how this unfolds if we have this transition in flux? It's hard to say. You know, I've had talks with, you know, the Biden transition team over the last several days, and certainly they're engaged. Biden put to, or President-elect Biden put together, I keep calling him Vice President Biden, but President-elect Biden put together a, a team of public health and other experts um, to look at the issues for what happens in January. 
Um, I think now we're reliant on the current administration. And I think the current administration's legacy it could be we took care of the vaccine. We have a treatment that works, which is the monoclonal antibody from Lilly that was approved on Monday. And we're starting to vaccinate a good portion of the country. That's a good legacy. And so my hope is the current administration views it as such and puts every effort they have to make this rollout successful so we can all be safe. You brought up the the uh, therapeutic from Eli Lilly. What is the significance of that in tandem with the vaccine news? Well, it means science had a pretty amazing day on Monday. Um, you know, there, there are very few days we could say science is, you know, in control. And for one day this year it was, and that was on Monday. So this monoclonal antibody was an early patient with COVID-19. They took the bone marrow cells out, and one of the B cells that was making an antibody that enabled that patient to get better, they took it and fused it with a cancer cell so it can continue growing and continue making lots of this antibody outside of the body in a bioreactor. And they were able to make very large quantities of it. And when they gave it to patients early, they were able to block hospitalization and make people get better much, much quicker. So that was really encouraging. It didn't work late, and it makes sense. By the time the virus has caused inflammation, it's your overactive immune system causing the problem. So lowering the virus at that point won't help dramatically. Uh, but if you give it early, it's a remarkably effective treatment. And I think there are going to be other companies with newer ones coming out. So the other area can be used uh, is on prevention. If Somebody in our nursing home has COVID-19 and they know that everybody else could have been exposed. You can give them a shot in the arm of the antibody and it can block everybody else in the nursing home getting sick by blocking the virus from getting into a cell. In fact, one of the antibodies in development from a company called AstraZeneca, which will be probably third to market, um, they change the antibody. So it doesn't last the classic three weeks like most antibodies last. This antibody will last in the blood almost a year and protect immunity there. And that may be very helpful for that fraction of the country that doesn't respond to a vaccine also. So this was an exciting day and that we hope these would work. Science should have worked and it did. You said that Monday was an amazing day and, and based on what we've faced over the past nine months, what does this mean just be it psychologically or otherwise, for the medical community and the scientific community? You know, it was a rough year. The United States universities in general said, stay at home. Most of the European universities said, I'm going to put cots in your laboratories. So scientists didn't stay at home. They actually continued to work very aggressively. There's some exceptions here in the United States. But, uh, uh, you know, we, our secret sauce in the U.S. is our science. And, you know, we kind of walked away from science over the last nine or 10 months. And the exceptions are some of these biotech and pharmaceutical companies um, and many of the labs in Europe where many of the advances came from, both in uh, therapeutics and in vaccines. And so what it also means going forward is that we have to align efforts together globally. I've never worked globally like I have these last eight months. Zoom has been a godsend. We're daily, my next call is with England. The call after that is with Germany. I'm calling, I mean, all over the world, and I've seen their faces. Two dimension is not as good as three, but what it means is this global alliance of science working together for today's problems and tomorrow's problems. 
And I really think that that new sense of teamwork across the globe is not going to help just with COVID-19 or with infectious disease, but with cancer, with Alzheimer's, with heart disease. And so the hope is, is that we learn a lesson here and learn a lesson that we're all fighting the same enemy, no matter where we live in the world. And if we align our forces together, like what happened these last couple of months in these vaccine and antibody programs, then we're much more likely to get advances. And so I think COVID-19 may be a wake-up call that one of the benefits is better treatments for Alzheimer's, heart disease, cancer, and other diseases. It's not lost on Dr. David Akis that this news comes in a week where COVID-19 is raging all across the country, where some states are seeing their worst outbreaks ever, and others are seeing numbers climb back to those that occur during the dark days of the spring. It's sad in that, you know, we know masks will work. They will block spread of the virus. And there's new data that came out this week that can actually significantly block you from getting the virus. Those are amazing statements from a piece of cloth um, or a piece of fabric. And so it's not a political statement not wearing a mask. It is not your right. We're the only country I know of with a bill of rights. I have a right to do what I want. How dare you say I wear a mask? Nobody in this country has a right to harm anybody else. And by not wearing a mask, you are potentially harming many other people. And that's against the core fabric of our country. And I think we need to get the explanation, the data out there. What happened now is that there was, you know, the public saw the sausage being made for the first time. We didn't know the first month there was asymptomatic spread. So myself included, didn't get up on a pulpit and say, wear a mask. Because we didn't know about that. We thought only people who were symptomatic needed to wear it. Once we learned that, the story changed. But the public has never saw the sausage being made. And now when you have disparate things said by disparate people, you know, from the executive office to the governors to the mayors, all saying slightly different things, there's a lot of confusion. You get to basically choose what you want or, you know, what is easier for your life. I think now we have to go back to the core science. And we need spokespeople who can say, here is the data and here's what we need to do. And I think that'll happen. Um, you, you know, we're not going, as we alluded to before, the virus isn't going to go away overnight. It's not a one and done shot. Is that we have to wear a mask. And every time we wear a mask, we can block spread of the virus. We will save lives. We are losing way over a thousand people a day at the present time. And these are, you know, members of family who had productive life yet. This rumor on the internet, they were about to die anyway. It was okay they got the virus. That's not accurate. These are people, many of which had years of quality life, and they worked their whole life. They wanted to spend time with their grandchildren, and they can't do it now. And we will enable that. There are couples that wanted to get married and haven't been able to get married because they can't go out. People are wearing masks. Many grandmas have never seen their grandchildren. Grandchildren haven't seen uncles and aunts because nobody can go out. If we stop wearing, if we start wearing masks and do this right, we're not going to shut down the economy. We're not going to shut down cities. We're going to do things strategically so we can actually continue to have our jobs, to have our families, and have our interactions. And it's that simple. And so this is not optional. And I believe in a mask mandate. I believe that you know we have to do that and find people who don't. I see it in L.A. One county has a mandate with fines. Everybody is wearing a mask. The county next to it, you know, a third of people are walking around without masks. And we have a mayor who say, you have to wear a mask in my city, but if you don't, I won't do anything. That's not leadership. 
There was something in New York that was interesting uh, this week. Dr. Jay Varmo, who's a health advisor, said they try to trace the cases in the city. 50% of them, there was no obvious place where someone got sick. What does that tell you, if anything? When there's asymptomatic spread, it's very hard to know where you got it. Right. If somebody is hacking and stuff coming out of their nose, you can say, well, I was with that person. That's likely where I got it. But this virus is unique from almost every other virus in that there's asymptomatic spread. And it is very difficult to do contact tracing in many cases. There certainly are spreader events where we can look at who was where, et cetera. We've seen it at the White House. We've seen it with the Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearing uh, party, et cetera. Um, and many of those contact tracing has had a dramatic effect. Um, when there's cases, too many cases in, in an area, it's very hard to do contact tracing. When there are a small number, it's very possible, and you can save lives in that regard. But it's not, you know, it's not a cure-all. I mean, the cure-all is wearing the mask, as simple as that. You know, there are Asian countries where they've normalized that behavior, and the number of virus infections is infinitesimally small and very few deaths because they are wearing a mask. You know, in uh, South Korea, the government bought up masks for every citizen and distributed them. Pharmacies would have to sell masks at cost, making no profit. So everybody had quality masks, and you know, the, it, it was part of the culture. Here, you know, the, the rich hospitals bought plenty of PPE. The poor ones didn't. And what do you know? Healthcare professionals in lower socioeconomic regions got sick, um, and we can't have that. We need uniform policy across the country to protect people. Dr. Reagan, thanks so much for your time. Is there, is there anything else you want to add that we didn't stress or cover that we, we should have? No, I, you know, we ended on this downer about you know, some of the behavior changes that we hope people will do. But there's a new sense of optimism here. And I think with light at the end of the tunnel, that is a vaccine and therapies that work. That'll provide people, I think, the impetus to hopefully have that behavior change. When you start to look at someone and say, I don't know when this is going to happen. It could be another year or two, which is what many of the pundits said just two weeks ago. Then it's very hard to enact something radically changing your life. Ah, it just will happen. But if I say we're months away from vaccinating large swaths of the country, then you can actually, with that light at the end of the tunnel, say, hey, I'm going to wait and I'm not going to go out. I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to have Thanksgiving alone this year just because I know soon we'll be able to do it safely. That's what I hope happens. And I think science has enabled that. And I really believe it should and will happen. A good week in a bad year. We'll take it. Our thanks to Dr. David Akis and CBS News. 880 In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. The executive producers are Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Scheld. Subscribe if you like what you're hearing and pass it on, please. Send a link to a friend. As always, be safe.
T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.